Content warning, this series contains mentions of mental health issues, suicide, sexual abuse, and other sensitive subjects. This is your host, Andrew Pledger, and this is Surviving Bob Jones University, a Christian Cult. I believe in and the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God. The incarnation and birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Episode 11, Is BJU Really a Cult? In this episode, we are going to use cult criteria and see if there are any signs of this at Bob Jones University. Now, before we get into this, let's define what a cult is. The definition of a cult can vary depending on the context and perspectives of those using the term. However, in general, a cult is a group or organization that has a charismatic or an authoritarian leader who exerts significant control over the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of its members. So at the core, cults are all about coercive control in a group. And how far each group goes to control its members, this exists on a spectrum. And that's why I want to emphasize cult is not a black and white term. It's a spectrum of control. One thing I want to emphasize is that when people think of a cult, they always think of like the worst absolute case scenario of it ending in bloodshed or mass suicide. And this is real and it does happen, but this doesn't happen in a lot of cults. Now, the reason we have this in our consciousness is because the media always goes to the worst case scenarios and doesn't focus on other groups that are still dangerous and still harmful, but are less extreme. And so that's one thing I really want to emphasize with the spectrum of control. Yes, there are cults that end up in bloodshed and in sex trafficking and all these things and there are also other cults that are on like the less extreme of the spectrum that don't go that far but they still meet cult criteria so this is what i mean when i talk about spectrum of control so usually all the cults you see in the media and on documentaries they usually get the ones that are on the very very far extreme and a lot of the ones that are Um, not as extreme but still harmful are not given attention and my biggest issue with this is that cults don't start as extreme it's gradual and they get to that point and each group differs on how far they go so it's so important to know the signs in the beginning rather than be going there at the very end and that's one thing I want to just make a big point of Cults often use manipulative tactics to recruit and retain members, such as isolation from the outside world or influences. They use fear, guilt, and shame, and other forms of psychological pressure. They may also have strict rules and expectations for their members, which can include limiting contact with non-members, requiring financial contributions, and promoting a particular ideology or worldview and claiming it as absolute truth. Cults are harmful to their members as they may promote extreme or dangerous practices. They may exploit their members financially and also exploit them for labor, and they also may exploit them emotionally. 
cults can also engage in illegal activities. It is important to note that not all new religious movements or alternative belief systems are cults. The core thing to remember is that it's control in these groups. How far are they going to control members? The psychology of cults is a complex and multifaceted subject, and there is no one-size-fits-all answer to this question. However, there are certain psychological factors that may make individuals more vulnerable to joining or staying in a cult. One factor is a need for belonging and identity. Cults often provide a tight-knit social group and a strong sense of identity, which can be very attractive to individuals who are feeling disconnected or lost. Another factor is a susceptibility to influence and persuasion. Cults often use high-pressure tactics and manipulative techniques to recruit and retain members. Individuals who are more susceptible to social influence or people who are more trusting or have a greater need for certainty and control in their lives may be more likely to be drawn in by these tactics. Finally, there is evidence to suggest that certain personality traits may make individuals more vulnerable to cult recruitment. For example, some studies have suggested that people who are more open to experience, who are more prone to disassociation, or who have a higher need for cognition may be more likely to be attracted to cults. It is also noticed that when people are in major life transitions or going through a hard period in life, this can also make people more susceptible. It is important to note, however, that not all people who join cults fit these profiles, and there are many other factors that can contribute to cult membership. Additionally, there is a great deal of individual variability in how people respond. And one thing I want to emphasize, I see a lot of victim blaming online with people asking, oh, why did you stay? Oh, why didn't you leave? Or, oh, they weren't keeping you captive. And the one thing I want to emphasize here, and I'm going to be paraphrasing from Daniela Messinek-Young, who is a cult expert, and I heard her say this, and this is just paraphrasing the words from this expert. But basically, she was saying that if a cult tells you you are a prisoner, you cannot leave, this is one of the fastest ways to break up a cult and wake up members. In this video, she was talking about how cults get you to stay for the majority of the time. I'm saying the majority, not 100%. Again, there's nuance to cults. But most of the time, there is such a risk leaving, and she calls it high exit cost. So high exit cost would be losing your community, losing your financial support system, losing your friends and your family, not having any resources outside the group so there's so much to lose when you leave and this is what keeps people in cults so the language of why didn't you leave blah 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 it's not that simple they purposely make it very hard to leave or escape these environments the next thing i want to say in the next section of this episode is there is no one black and white definitive set of characteristics that applies to all cults as they can take on many different forms and operate in different ways. There are common characteristics that are often associated with cults and this is what I want to list. Number one is the charismatic or authoritarian leader. 
Cults are often led by charismatic individuals who have a strong influence over the beliefs and actions of their followers. Another type of leader that usually leads a cult is an authoritarian leader. They make decisions with little or no input from their followers, and they often use manipulative, intimidating, or bullying tactics to enforce their policies and processes. They also implement a large number of internal control, such as rules and procedures that limit the freedom of their group members, and authoritarian leaders require unquestioning obedience and compliance and may punish anyone who fails to do so. Number two is exclusive belief system. Cults usually have a set of beliefs or doctrines that are often seen as only correct or true beliefs. Number three, manipulative recruitment tactics. Cults often use manipulative tactics to recruit new members, such as love bombing, isolation, and pressure to conform. Number four, isolation from outside influences. Cults often isolate members from the people outside of the group and limit access to outside information and perspectives. Number five, strict rules and expectations. Cults often have strict rules and expectations for their members, including requirements for financial contribution and absolute loyalty to the group, and also nearly impossible standards and rules to follow. Number six, extreme practices. Some cults may promote or engage in extreme or dangerous practices such as self-harm, deprivation, or violence. Number seven, mind control and thought reform. Cults may use techniques such as hypnosis, indoctrination, and thought-stopping techniques to control and manipulate the thoughts and behaviors of their members. Now that you have an understanding of cults, I'm now going to use two models that are used by cult experts to analyze cults. The first one is Lipton's Criteria for Thought Reform, and the second one is the Bite Model by Stephen Hassan. Now, I'm going to be using my analysis of these two models, and I'm going to be sending it to a couple of cult experts who will have their own opinions of Bob Jones University. All right, number one, Lipton's Criteria for Thought Reform. And this was made by Robert J. Lipton. And this is a set of characteristics that he identified being common to situations where individuals are subjected to intense social or psychological pressure in an effort to change their beliefs or behaviors. And he has eight criteria. The first one is milieu control, also known as environment control. So this is where the individual is isolated from outside influences and exposed only to the group's ideology, and where they live is also controlled. Number two is a mystical manipulation. The group creates an intense emotional experience or conversion that is attributed to the group's beliefs or practices. And in some cults, they will fake spiritual things that are happening. And for this is also something that's common in charismatic cults is they'll get information about you ahead of time. And then they'll come to you and tell you information that the Holy Spirit or whatever told them. That's an ex another example of that. Or another example, which is common in fundamentalist Christianity, 
is just this extremely emotionally manipulative sermon. And you're told that these emotions and things that you're feeling, they attribute that to God instead of understanding that they create this atmosphere to emotionally manipulate you. The third criteria is demand for purity. The individual is expected to conform to a narrow set of beliefs and behaviors, and any deviation is seen as a threat to the group's ideology. So the thing with demand for purity is that you are given nearly impossible standards to follow, and if you fall out of line, you're honestly trained to, like, tattle on yourself, to correct yourself, and also to correct other people. And it creates this culture of fear and shame if you do not follow these rules perfectly. The fourth criteria is cult of confession. So the individual is encouraged to confess all past and present transgressions, which are then used to reinforce the group's ideology, and this information is also used to manipulate and control them. The fifth criteria is sacred science. The group's ideology is presented as the absolute and ultimate truth, and it is beyond question or challenge. Number six is loaded language. The group uses language that is highly charged and often cliched, which serves to limit critical thinking and reinforce the group's ideology. Number seven is doctrine over person. So the individual's experiences and feelings are subordinated to the group's doctrine. So it doesn't matter what happens to an individual in this group, protecting the group's doctrine or protecting the group's reputation matters more that they will silence members who go against the flow. Number eight is dispensing of existence. The group holds the power to determine who is worthy of life and who is not. Also known as, in some cults, who is saved, who is unsaved, who are believers, who are unbelievers, who are children of God, who are children of Satan. So it's that extreme us versus them mindset. And usually people who are outside of the cults, who have different opinions, they are completely dismissed because they don't believe. They don't believe in God. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're in control by Satan. So anyone who is outside the group, if their opinions go against what the group say, their existence is dismissed. And this is often based on the group's adherence to the group's ideologies. So this criteria, Lipton's criteria for thought reform, this has been used to understand the dynamics of cults, political movements, and other situations where individuals are subjected to intense social or psychological pressure to conform to a particular ideology. The second model is Stephen Hassan's Bite Model, and it is a framework that he developed to help individuals recognize and understand the tactics used by groups or organizations to control their members' thoughts, behaviors, emotion, and information. So yes, the Bite Model stands for Behavior, Information, Thoughts, and Emotions. And here is a brief overview of each of these elements. Number one, behavior control. This involves regulation of an individual's physical activity, including their diet, sleep, and sexual practices. Groups or organizations that use behavior control may enforce strict rules and punishments for those breaking those rules. Number two, information control. This refers to the restriction of information that members can access or share with others. 
Groups that use information control may limit access to news or other outside sources of information and may require members to rely solely on the group's teachings. Number three, thought control. This involves the manipulation of individuals' thoughts and beliefs. Groups that use thought control may enforce rigid ideological beliefs and discourage critical thinking or questioning of authority. Number four, emotional control. This refers to the regulation of an individual's emotions. Groups that use emotional control may use fear, guilt, shame, or other forms of emotional manipulation to control their members' behavior. The BITE model has been used to analyze the tactics of a wide range of groups, including cults, political organizations, and abusive relationships. By understanding these tactics, individuals can better recognize and resist attempts to control their behavior, the information they're exposed to, their thoughts, and their emotions. Now, before we get into my analysis, I think it's important to also define mind control. So, mind control. This is a definition from Stephen Hassan from his book that's called Combating Cult Mind Control. So mind control is any system of influence that disrupts an individual's authentic identity and replaces it with a false new one. So mind control is very covert manipulation that goes on in a cultic group. And these techniques exist on a continuum. There are some overt ones. But I think in this, there are usually more, it's more covert. You don't know that it's happening. And so as people are desensitized to different techniques, it gets more and more and it increases. And people who are subjected to mind control are actually unaware that it's happening. So again, I'm using the two models, Lipton's Criteria for Thought Reform and Stephen Hassan's Bite Model. First, I'll be using Lipton's Criteria for Thought Reform. So the first one is Malu control or environment control. So this is controlling the environment that the cult members are in. It can look like separating groups of people or followers and also controlling where the followers live. Followers are also taught to not trust unbelievers or non-followers. Anyone outside the group's ideology is not trusted. So at BJU... We all know this is a very controlling environment, but I want to dig into the specifics. First, they control where you live. If you are living from out of state between the ages of 18 to 22 and you're going to Bob Jones, you are required all four years to live on campus. And because of this, you're exposed to their hierarchical leadership that is in every single dorm for that further level of control. So they're controlling where you live. Another part is limiting the contact between guys and girls and not even allowing any kind of queer relationship. So controlling sexual behavior and even things that aren't sexual just by people having human contact with each other. Human contact is really demonized at Bob Jones University. Another part of the environment control at Bob Jones are the required religious activities that we have to participate in. So discipleship groups, chapel, required church attendance, societies, and we've covered that a lot throughout this series, but those fit into this category. And for discipleship groups, there was something that meant several nights a week, and all these things were required 
or you would get demerits. And with discipleship groups in chapel, they were both connected because you were given a specially crafted booklet that the university created for you that reinforced these messages from chapel to continue that indoctrination. So I think a part of that was all these activities. So in addition to being a college student, in addition to most of us having a job, we have all these different religious activities in addition to going to church. So there wasn't much of a weekend either. It's to just keep you so busy to stop you from questioning and also to keep you indoctrinated with the group's teachings. And I think a part of it too is information control. And in this environment, there is this extreme us versus them mindset that keeps you scared from interacting with the outside world that really kept you in. And I think another thing is they control the speech of members on social media. Like if you are saying something in social media that does not go or really goes against their ideology, you will most likely be expelled. And that's what happened to me. When you go against what they say, And you speak up. So I was someone who publicly left fundamentalism and I spoke up against its toxicity and its harm because this culture victim blames. It tells people they are the problem. The system of control is never at fault. The teachings are never at fault. The leaders are never at fault. It is always on you. So I spoke up and I said, no, this system is harmful and it has abusive teachings. And so for this, I was kicked out. I was excommunicated. I was shunned. And what happened was they could no longer control me. And because they couldn't do that anymore, the only thing they could do was control the way that other people in the group could see me. So there was a smear campaign that happened and it didn't end up working out too well, quite honestly, because a lot of Bob Jones people follow my work and have followed my story. So again, that control of the environment and the fear of people on the outside to keep you in. The second criteria is mystical manipulation, which is just planned spontaneity or a planned spiritual experience. So it's just cults create this atmosphere to emotionally manipulate you and they make you think that it's God. And this happens every single year at Bob Jones University Bible Conference. They use all these fear and shame and guilt tactics. And when you're broken down, a lot of people, they confess to things they've done, which this kind of ties into the cults of confession, which I'll go into later. But they create this emotional experience that manipulates you to confess. And you're told that it's God. And it gets a lot of people into trouble. And I think another thing is every Bible conference, they have their little fundraiser that they do, and they always raise a lot of money for that. And it usually doesn't quite meet the goal at first, and then it suddenly goes way over the goal, and then they always attribute that to God, this miracle thing that happened. But we all know that there are big donors behind the scenes who will give money to the school. And in my opinion, I think it was manipulative to do this to get people more devoted, to inspire them more and get them more extreme on the teachings. And like, oh, like this is real. This is legit. God's doing this. Like, oh, we have the truth. And the third criteria is demand for purity. So it is black and white thinking around choices. And it is just requiring members 
to strive for unattainable perfection by conforming to these rules. And shame and guilt and punishment are used to keep people in line. So, for examples at BJU, there are always sermons on just sexual desires in general. You are not allowed to have sexual desires. It was called lust. You were supposed to confess and ask for forgiveness, and you were told you could overcome sexual desires through the Holy Spirit. And people who are educated know that sexual desires are biological, and there are specific hormones and different things in our bodies that cause this. So we would literally have to get rid of certain hormones in our bodies to stop sexual desires. But because they believe they have the absolute truth, and they believe that we can crucify our flesh or crucify sexual desires to oppress them, to destroy them. And they're taught this because you're taught that, oh, you are saved. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can do this. You can overcome any sin. And I think another part of this demand for purity is this extreme view of people. This, some people would call it worm theology, that you are rotten to the core. There is nothing good inside of you. And so for me, I've sat under the teachings of fundamentalist Christianity my whole life, and there's just so many toxic and harmful elements to it. But this is one of these harmful teachings, but this teaching is that all people are evil and are unsaved because they can't follow the Bible perfectly. You have to follow the Bible perfectly in order to go to heaven. And so because we can't do this, no, they say that no one can follow the Bible perfectly. That's why Jesus had to come down, fulfill the law, die on the cross for our sins, so that then we could accept Jesus. So we didn't have to follow the Bible perfectly because it wasn't possible to do. So God did that for us. And so you're automatically an evil person. And I remember hearing that if you break one law, you break all of them in the Bible. So again, this impossible expectation to follow these teachings. And in addition, they have a whole rule book that you're expected to follow perfectly. And if you don't and you're caught, you'll be punished. And there's a snitching culture that rewards people who snitch. And we're all so hypervigilant, worried about who's going to snitch on us. And sometimes people just snitch on themselves because they're afraid of how much trouble they'll get into. And so there's so much shame to conform constantly to these teachings. And you're supposed to confess and ask for forgiveness for not conforming and get back in line. And once you break that rule again or think of a certain thought, you readjust and you conform. So it's not just you're conforming behaviorally, but like you're thinking. They are changing your thinking. The fourth criteria is Lipton's cults of confession. So when someone fails to attain purity or conform perfectly to the rules of the group, you're either expected to publicly confess or privately confess to an individual for accountability. So they indoctrinate you to have so much guilt about any little thing that you do wrong that goes against the cult's ideology. And they really want you to talk with the spiritual leader or an authority figure to confess what you've done and hold you accountable. And the thing about accountability in cults is a lot of cults, they are not held accountable for the crimes that they do, for the abuse, whether it's emotional, physical, sexual, psychological, spiritual, whatever kind of abuse, they're not held accountable. They don't hold themselves accountable for these things. But 
accountability in cults this is a word that is just so twisted in these contexts and accountability is when again you disobey and someone holds you accountable for not following the rules perfectly and they keep you in line so i think another and really an example of this was when I was at Bob Jones University, I, it was a, either every semester or every year, we had a Christian evaluation form. And I want to emphasize, you were not required to fill this out. But there was still so much social pressure to fill this out because I remember my residence hall assistants, he would ask me every once in a while, oh, how how is that form coming along? Did you fill it out? And the thing is, once you filled out this form, you were expected, if you did that, to meet with a spiritual leader, whether it was from your church, whether it was your discipleship group leader, whether it was an RA or some kind of spiritual authority figure, you were then expected to go over this form and see how much really you're following their expectations of what a Christian should be and seeing if you really follow the rules. And if you're not, it's a way to help you readjust and conform. And so there was a lot of social pressure to fill this out, even though it was not required. And I remember that pressure, but I still, I refused to fill it out. And I would usually brush it off when people would ask me, and eventually people would just move on. And usually this form would be things like, do you read your Bible every day? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you pray every day? Do you regularly attend church? And the thing is, they wanted to know what was your attitude or feelings about engaging in these things. And I think that's what's important to know. They wanted to know your internal thoughts and feelings. And the fifth criteria is called sacred science. And the definition of sacred science is the group's ideology is considered absolute truth and it cannot be questioned or disputed. And also the head leader is seen as enlightened or as a spokesperson for God. So the ideology cannot be questioned at whatever, and it's truth. And I think the biggest obvious example of this at Bob Jones University is the creed that we say every single chapel service. And this creed has been in the intro of every single episode. And we are expected to say this, see it as absolute truth, and not question it. And you have to at least say that you agree with this creed to go to the school and in addition to saying this in chapel, we were required to write it down by memory in Bible classes. And the sixth criteria of Lipton's mind control model is called loaded language. So this is language that is cliched and that is also used to shut down critical thinking. And another thing is that groups also redefine words or use them in new ways so that people that are on the outside would never know the terminology. So, and examples of words or things that are used to shut down critical thinking, I think it's also referred to as thought-terminating cliches, which these also, they alter thought processes and prevent meaningful discussion. Thought-terminating cliches would be things like, oh, just trust God, we'll only know when we die, he knows more than us, God knows everything, we don't. So it's shaming people for questioning and using these trite Christianese words or phrases to stop people from questioning. And I think another thing is redefining certain words. I think love is a word that is just twisted in this environment. There have been people who have been 
emotionally, verbally, and psychologically abused with different leadership at Bob Jones. And they're told that this abuse is discipline. And they tell people that it's loving. They're trying to correct them. They're trying to keep them from straying away from a path to hell. So these things and words are redefined and twisted to control people. And I think another thing is like happiness or just joy. You're supposed to always put people's needs before your own or really put God first and then others' needs second and then your needs last. So you're just supposed to be constantly serving others and not taking care of yourself. And if you're not happy or have joy in this environment, that's seen as a spiritual weakness. You're supposed to have joy because this is the truth. It's the answer. It's supposed to make you happy. So I think these are things that are twisted in this environment where you're not allowed to experience your full humanity. Another interesting thing about Bob Jones is they have their own lingo, which a lot of cults, they have their own language. So I think one of the first words that I heard there was a boge which I've defined, I have a list of words in the very first episode or in the beginning of the series where I list off a bunch of terms that were made at Bob Jones University that people who attend Bob Jones University would only know. So you can go back and listen to that list, but I do not want to repeat them again. The seventh criteria is called doctrine over person. So this is when individual experiences, emotions, values, Needs are unimportant compared to the ideals of the group. So any experience that does not fit the group's narrative or ideology is dismissed and discredited. So beliefs are put above people. And I think an obvious example of this are the survivors that were interviewed for the Grace Report, where representatives wanted to protect the school's reputation, wanted to protect what they thought was the truth by silencing victims and not wanting them to come forward. They silenced them. They put the doctrine and the reputation of the university over what that person went through. And I think another thing is at Bob Jones is the mental health issues. If your experiences with mental health doesn't fit their biblical counseling model, they're just going to shame and blame you. It's your fault. It's not the ideology. It's not the leaders. It's not the group. It is on you. And if you really believed enough, the doctrine would work for you. So they don't recognize really the complexities of people's situations. And so again, they are prioritizing their beliefs over the mental health and well-being of the person in front of them. Another example of this is their bigotry towards LGBTQ plus people. They put their own interpretation of scripture over the well-being of LGBTQ plus students. So a lot of queer students are kicked out and demonized, and there's a lot of hateful and bigoted language, which you heard in another episode around this. And again, you've heard throughout this series of people who didn't come perfectly follow the rules, just completely just kicked out and excommunicated from the group because their doctrine mattered more. This does not sound like Christ's love to me at all. And again, doctrine matters above everything else. So if the doctrine's not working for you in your situation, it's on you. And the eighth criteria is dispensing of existence. And this insinuates a very clear us versus them mindset so the outside are evil the people who don't believe they're blind to the truth those on the inside are righteous and the children of god and you have the truth 
So anyone who is outside of the group's ideology automatically loses credibility. So when a person leaves a group, they are usually excommunicated or rejected from that community. Now, I want to state the obvious. When you go to a university, you're supposed to graduate and leave the group. And the thing with Bob Jones University is that their influence goes way beyond the university itself. As you've heard throughout this series, they have so many churches across America that Bob Jones University is a mothership for. So if you are attending one of these churches and Bob Jones University finds out that you're doing something that they don't approve of or even someone within that church, word will easily get out and excommunication can happen. It's also true that when people leave Bob Jones, they stay in contact with alumni. And if you go against what the majority of alumni say or behave, you can also be excommunicated from that fellowship and that community. Another thing I want to emphasize is there is a small number of people that end up staying at Bob Jones University their entire lives. So yes, eventually there are a lot of people that will leave Bob Jones and they get out. But a lot of people, they are so indoctrinated, they will take this ideology no matter where they go. And yes, there are some that will deconstruct and escape, but it's so difficult because fundamentalism is really your entire world and existence. So it makes it impossible to get out of the Bob Jones bubble once you're physically out of the university. And again, from my own personal experience, I was excommunicated for speaking up against fundamentalist ideology. So it doesn't matter if someone on the outside has any criticism, if they are outside the group's ideology, if they're an unbeliever, if they're unsaved, and these are different terms used to demonize people on the outside to have that us versus them mindset, that person is automatically dismissed. Oh, they're under the influence of Satan. Oh, they don't believe. They don't. They are not enlightened to the truth like we are. Our eyes are open to the truth. They are blind. We cannot trust them. They're bad. They're evil. So this is a way to shut down critical thinking for people in the group so they can then look at outside members who are saying something different and be like, oh, no, they're bad. We can't trust them. So now that we went over Lifton's criteria for thought reform, I really want to dig into Stephen Hassan's bite model. So B is for behavior control. So we've talked a lot throughout this series about all the rules that are put in place to control behavior, especially around sex and contact with other people. So this is a big part of Bob Jones. So number one, the behavior with relationships and also where you live and also where you can go. Because like there are definitely different restaurants or places that you were not allowed to go to because they served alcohol or different things like that. Again, guys and girls could not have contact. They couldn't even hug each other. So there was extreme control around where you lived and also contact that you could have with people. And the second thing is information control. So this is a big part of Bob Jones University. The information you could be exposed to, TV, media, video games, books, internet sites were blocked. 
And another part of information control, which I don't think we've covered in this series yet, is censoring. There were certain books that were censored at Bob Jones. I was in the photography department, and they would have books, or they would censor certain pictures and books, block them out completely, because they were afraid of you sinning or lusting. And another thing is censoring students' art, controlling art students and what they could say or express through their art. This is a big issue, and there's a whole issue with the fashion design controversy at Bob Jones University, which we're going to cover in another episode. But yeah, so with information, all these different aspects of information control they have on you. And if you are seen or discovered consuming information that you're not allowed to, so watching TV, reading a book, or certain music that you listen to, you are getting in trouble. All right, and thought control is next. So these are techniques that are used to control what you believe and really what you're thinking. And the creed is an example of that. When you're in this group setting, and this is something that happens when you say something in unison with a group or singing something, you're really put into a deeper state of mind, kind of like hypnosis, where you're more susceptible to messages. And the more and more that you participate in irrational behavior, the more you do that, the more numbed you're going to be to it, and the more likely you're going to accept those teachings or those beliefs or continue to conform to that behavior. So yes, the creed is an example of that, where that is said in unison as a student body, every single chapel service. And I think another example of thought control are, again, the thought terminating cliches or things that they say to stop you from questioning. So again, those same phrases, oh, just trust God. Oh, we won't know when we, until we die. God knows more than us. And you could just keep going on with all the Christianese language. And again, I think information control is connected to thought control because the way to have different thoughts is also to expose yourself to different information, to be able to question and hold space for different thoughts. And I think another thing is a lot of students self-monitor themselves, afraid of not conforming enough, of not believing enough. Um, ha wanting to have a good attitude and be happy because if you have poor mental health, it is seen as a sin that you're not trusting enough, you're not believing enough. So we're constantly all trying to seem so happy, even though we might not, not be feeling that because if you are struggling mentally, you are forced usually into biblical counseling, which is very, very harmful. So a lot of us are trying to self-monitor ourselves to avoid any kind of control even though we are being controlled but we just don't want that further for us the last one is emotional control so controlling your emotions again the emotional manipulation that happens a lot at bob jones is through their sermons and through discipleship groups and at their churches where fear guilt and shame are used to manipulate you and you are told how to interpret your emotions in these environments they tell you what your emotions mean, and usually they're the root of some kind of sin. And there's a common phrase that Bob Jones is like, oh, it's a heart issue. You need to work on your heart. You need to do better. It is you. It's never them, never the teachings. And again, you're just expected to be happy because you're supposed to have the joy of the Lord. You have the truth. You have the answer. You have eternal life. Before I end this episode, I just want to say, I could dig into so much more of why 
Bob Jones meets more of this criteria, but you've heard so many survivor stories of control. So, and those are more examples of just all the extent of control that they had. And one last thing that I want to cover before this episode ends is that I've had some people say, oh, they didn't have control over me. I broke so many rules. I did this. I did that. They did not know. And it's funny because I broke rules too and got away with a lot. But it's funny to me because when people say this, they will tell me all the things they did to hide it, all the things they did and didn't do to get away with it. So basically telling me how they had to change their own behavior and change who they had to be around to get away with this. So it's like, even if you break the rules, there's still control over you because you can't do it freely. You have to literally change your behavior and they're influencing you in that way. And then you still have that fear in the back of your mind of, oh, what if they find out? Thank you for listening to this episode of Surviving Bob Jones University. It would be greatly appreciated if you could give the podcast a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews helps listeners just like you find the show.